that was amazing. That, uh, that word in that last song, the faithfulness of God, the faithfulness of God. If there's one thing that sustains us, it's his faithfulness. One of my favorite scriptures, uh, when I say favorite, it's not like, you know I mean like favorite, like chocolate ice cream kind of favorite, you know. One of those verses that are sustaining to me is, um, is Paul talking to Timothy. He's talking to his, his one he sees like a son. And uh, he says, this is a trustworthy saying. And it's a little saying he has. It's in 2 Timothy. And he goes down, you know, if, you, if you're uh, um, uh, with, with contrasting perspectives, if you do this, then the Lord will do that. If you do this, then the Lord will do that. But the last one, he says, the, it just gets me. It gets me every time. It got me the first time I read it. It says, when we are faithless, when we are faithless, and I expected it to say, the first time I read that, I expected it to say, you're out of luck, bud. But that's not what it says. It says, he is faithful, for he cannot deny himself. For he cannot deny himself. And I, I think this is a good way to, to get into uh, the subject we're going to be talking about this morning. Um, this is another, um, uh, I shared this last time, that you know the, 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 those messages on faith have been kind of difficult for me. Because uh, for, on one side, faith is something that we've heard about forever. And so we hear that subject, oh, I know about that. You know, it, it can be some, come so familiar to us that we, we just tune out the words and we don't seek to hear the words in a new way. We don't seek to hear what is God trying to tell us through this. Um, and, and it can become just rote. The second thing that was difficult is I was, I was literally prepared to move on. So for those that, that don't know what I'm doing, I'm doing a series out of Second Peter. Um, it's the, there are eight qualities Second Peter gives us. From uh, verses in chapter one, verses uh, five through nine, there are eight qualities he gives us, and he says this about these qualities. Um, he says, "For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith, their first quality, with virtue, virtue with knowledge, third quality, knowledge with self-control, self-control with steadfastness, steadfastness with godliness." Godliness with brotherly affection and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective and unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins." Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election, for if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. For in this way, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And he goes on to say, he says, listen, I know that Jesus has told me I'm not going to be in the body much longer, and that's why I'm telling you this. This is the message I want you to take with you. To know, these are my parting words. I'm leaving these words that if you live these things, you will live in a hope that will be fulfilled at the return of Christ. Conversely, if we ignore these things, we've actually, it's if you're so nearsighted, you forgot you were saved. And so, uh, I've spent, um, you know, many hours just thinking about these things over and over and over again. And so this first one, his faith, and, I was, and I've done this three, uh, two or three, two. I did two messages on faith. I was going to move on. But this last aspect of faith, I feel like we need to talk about. And that's the testing of faith. The testing of faith. Um, and I was going to leave it be and go forward. Um, who wants to talk about the testing of faith? You know, we want to talk about happy, 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 right? Well, I may submit to you, if we actually want to talk about happy, 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 we have to talk about the testing of faith. Um, and because the testing of faith, as much as we might want it to be, is not ancillary to our walk, it's central to our walk. And that's what's hard about it. It's hard to hear that it is central to a calling in Christ. 
It's hard to hear that. It's especially hard to hear. You know, I like C.S. Lewis. He said this. He, he wrote a book called The Problem of Pain. And C.S. Lewis is a brilliant author. One of the things he says in it, he says, you know, I can make these, and this is me paraphrasing him, this is the way he said it, but I can make these wonderful theological arguments that explain all about the power of pain, but all of them kind of go away when I have a toothache. It's when you're in the middle of it. Because, and so the, the problem with talking about this subject is that it will not satisfy, there isn't words that I can give you that takes the pain away. You see, what, that's the, if we're listening, thinking, we're going to talk about the testing of faith and going through trials and struggling, thinking that somehow we're going to get this measure of truth that's all of a sudden going to make that pain go away, that doesn't happen. Folks, the cross was real. Jesus didn't feel the pain less because he knew the joy that was coming. He endured the pain because he knew the joy that was coming. And that has to be the mindset at which we come into listening to this, to seeking this, to, to hearing what God has to say. Because there is a real fruit of going through it. There is a real fruit. There is a real hope. But the hope isn't that the pain goes away. I mean, in the sense that I I'm not, have, don't have to go through it. Because ultimately it does go away. And we'll look at some scriptures. We're going to look at a bunch of scriptures and, and kind of make our way through that. I'm going to start off with a video. Um, many of you know um, I'm, uh, uh, I, I like to listen to a particular um, speaker. His name is Jordan Peterson, Dr. Jordan Peterson. He's a professor at the University of Toronto. He's also an evolutionary psychologist. Um, and he says a lot of things that make a lot of sense. And uh, I don't know a, a, a better person outside of scripture that puts their finger on the understanding of the plight of humanity, where we are, um, and what we have to go through as human beings. And so I'm going to play this video. I kind of wondered whether or not to play it. I'm going to play it. It's a bit, um, just stick with me. Stick with it. He makes an amazing pronouncement at the end. There's an amazing pronouncement at the end. So, uh, having said that, let's just go ahead and play the video, see if it, see if it, uh, see if it works. I brought it in last minute, so they do wonders back there. Then why do meaningful things? And the answer is, well, because life is Can we start it back? And malevolent. Well, why do meaningful things? Well, first of all, what is meaning? But then why do meaningful things? And the answer is, well, because life is suffering and malevolence it's ineradicable at its core it's like that will take you out make no mistake about it you need something to you need to be armed with virtue in order to for that not to turn into hell really you really need that and it isn't just your hell that's bad enough that can be really bad especially when you're contributing to it Right? Because then not only are you suffering, but you know you're the agent that's producing the suffering. And then maybe that's not just for you. It's like you're taking out your family. If you're really good at it, you're taking out large swaths of your community. That's hell. It's like, and that's real. And no one with any sense and any experience has any doubt that that's real. And then they all could easily think of how, even though it's already bad, you could make it way worse. Everyone knows that. So what's the bulwark against that? Nobility of purpose. That's it. You have that, then you can, then, then you have something to set against the suffering and the malevolence. And you need, it isn't optional. That's not optional. You cannot live without it. Not meaning without is not optional, right? Well, that's and, why it's such a deep instinct. Right. It's an instinct meaning. It's the instinct of life. My life is meaningless. It's the spirit has gone out of you. It's like, well, me, but, and you know, modern people, it's part of this process of criticism. We've criticized the idea of meaning so much that we don't really believe in it anymore. It's like, well, that's fine. You cannot believe it, but try living without it. See how far you get with that. So in the case that I've been making to people, which they find entirely credible, it's partly the hell case that I just laid out. It's like, okay, you need a reason to get out of bed on a terrible day. Okay, what's that reason going to be? Well, let's think it through. You know people who can get out of bed on a terrible day. Do you admire them? Yes. 
What are those people like? Are they taking responsibility for themselves? Definitely. Do they have excess capacity so they're taking responsibility for other people? Yeah. Are they doing difficult things? Yes, obviously. The more you respect them, the more you also see that they're doing difficult things and doing them well. So what does that mean? Do some difficult things. Do them well. And you justify your miserable existence. And people, you can lay that argument out to an audience of 3,000 people. A lot of them are there because they're trying to set their houses in order philosophically and, and religiously and practically all at the same time. It's what they want. You, say, you lay out that argument to people, they go, yep, right, and, and walk up the hill. So, yep, I get it. And people do get it. And it's not surprising because that is the end. That's the alternative to hell. And so, and that is what's expressed in our deepest religious ideas. That's the idea of, 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 of the, that's the idea that's, uh, uh, symbolically represented in the crucifixion. It's like, accept the burdensome condition of suffering voluntarily, and you transcend it. Did y'all catch what he said there? Did y'all catch that ending? Did y'all catch that, that? First of all, let me start where he started. Life is suffering. What we go through in this world is suffering. It's difficult. It's hard. This, this is an, an axiom that you will find across uh, multiple worldviews, that life is suffering, life is hard. In fact, if you, if you look at the pantheistic worldview, it's the, it's the main axiom, they say, uh, in Buddhism, all life is suffering. And, but the, the pantheists, the way the pantheists do, deal with it, they say it's an illusion, and so they seek to, 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 a way to get away from self so they can get away from suffering. Because if you're in this world, you're suffering, so we want to get out of that. That's the, that's the pantheist way. Naturalists, and, I don't, and we're not going to go through an exhaustive, uh, uh, an exhaustive um, understanding of every worldview and how they deal with it. But there's one thing I, I've read and, and, and heard when you hear certain naturalists, atheists, they'll say this. They'll say, this is Richard Dawkins. He actually wrote this. He says that... that Life is not, uh, there is no purpose, there is no meaning. At the bottom line, all we're doing is dancing to our DNA. In other words, we do what we're wired to do. We're pre-wired and that's the way it's going to be. And the way that they deal with suffering is, uh, sorry, that's just the way we are. How would you, how do you like that? Tell that to somebody who just had malevolence done to them. Oh, sorry, dancing to our DNA. So, so what do we do? How do we make sense of all this? Where, where, where do we go? We turn to God because uh, if, if, how many times I've heard people say, and it's one of the biggest questions, if, if we're in a world that's suffering and God is good, why is there suffering still here? Why do we still have to face it? If he is good and he's all powerful, why doesn't he just get rid of it? Why doesn't he just deal with it? Now, again, we're not going to have a comprehensive answer this morning. Uh, you, you, we, uh, it, would be, it would be unfair and wrong of me to tell you that in a few minutes we can literally unravel this whole thing. But my hope is in a few minutes we can look at some scriptures and we can have some hope and we can see that God does have purpose, God does have meaning through this, and we can see a path forward. Maybe something can awaken us where we what? Hold on to the faith that he's given us. Because I'm going to tell you the key through it is faith defined as faithfulness. There's a scene, I've shared it with you before, when Jesus is uh, talking to the crowd. Jesus had a way with crowds. Let me say that. He had a way with crowds. He was not moved by them. He's talking to the crowd and he knows that the crowd is chasing him down because they want him to do things for them. And that becomes the question. And this is what really dials me into this subject of faith for us. How many of us as Christians are Christians simply because we just want Jesus to do things for us? We want a magic Jesus. I want to rub the lamp and have my three wishes answered. 
And so Jesus knows the crowd's following after them. And he tells them, he says, listen, I'm the bread from life. He actually gives them the answer they're looking for. I'm the bread from heaven. You thought Moses gave you manna? I'm that manna. I'm it. And they're like, what do you mean you're that manna? We know who your parents are. What do you mean you came from heaven? We know Mary and Joe personally. We played cards with them on Thursday night. He said, unless you eat my bread, eat my body and drink my blood, you have no part in me. Unless you believe in me, you have no part in me. And everybody walked away. This, he's crazy. He's nuts. I don't understand what he's saying. And they walked away because he wasn't satisfying what was satisfying to the flesh. But those who were his followers, guess what his followers did? His followers were as equally befuddled with his answer as the crowds were. His followers had no more clue what the... He turns to his followers and he says, are you going to quit too? Are you going to leave too? And they looked at him and then we left him to sleep. Where else is there to go? You have the answers for life. You have the answers for life. And so... Ultimately, ultimately, how does God speak to this? I'm going to say, if we want to find the answer, the answer begins and ends at the cross. Why? Because when we look and and we're going through this life, how many, I mean, every single one of us in here at one level or another can say, somehow we are a victim. We've been victimized. We have pain. And if it's not you, you're just waiting around for your turn. If it's not you, you know a half a dozen other people. I mean, look, look at the week we just went through. I don't know how many neighbors I had had pipes bursting, no power. You know, how many thousands were without power? And quite frankly, the fact that we even have the amount of power and running water like we have, we live in a miracle time in history to have this kind of luxury that most people live in. But yet, we, you know, we're, we're going through a, a horrible pandemic around the world. We have... We have uh, um, all kinds of unrest in the world, and people, there is no stability. And that's awesome. Just saw a little, Froze didn't see a little girl walking around, because that's life. And how did, how did the Lord answer this? How did the Lord answer this? He entered into it. He entered into it. He took on the form of a human flesh. He was born into it. He lived through it. He lived through all of the malevolence, all of the evil, all of the the faults that man can do to him. Listen, if you think about the cross for a minute, I, I want you to stop and think about the cross. Is there a greater picture of malevolent, gratuitous evil on earth? What do you have in Christ? What did he do? He raised people from the dead. He fed people. He healed people. He took in the brokenhearted. He took in the poor. He welcomed all uh, uh, to, to be a part of the family of God. Did he challenge with truth? Absolutely. He challenged the lies that people were believing. And what did we do to him? And if we don't Take on that word we, we don't understand the human heart. What did we do to him? We took an innocent man, we put him on an a, a, uh, um, absolute kangaroo trial, and we tortured him to death. Now, this is actually such a troubling picture that there are a lot of people who look at the cross and go, I can't get it. I can't get why God would do something like that. It doesn't make any sense to me. Why would God allow that to happen? But catch what happens at the cross. What does Jesus not do? What is he? I mean, just a few hours before the cross... Peter pulls out a sword, cuts off the ear of one of the soldiers, is like, Lord, I'll fight for you. How fast are we ready to pick up the sword and fight? I'll fight for you. I'll do this. And the next thing you know, we've got a mob somewhere. Jesus said, put it down. If you live by that, you'll die by that. If you live by that, you'll die by that. 
Peter didn't understand it. He so didn't understand it that the same one who was ready to pick up a sword and fight was also the same one who was, would deny him three times that very night. Jesus allowed all that we would do to him to come on him. And in so doing, he actually gave meaning and purpose to all the evil done to him. Now that's a miracle. That's a miracle. He gave meaning, ultimate meaning and purpose. No matter what anybody threw at him, no matter what came at him, insults, lies, uh, torture, beatings, death itself, no matter what came at him, he took all of it on and he turned it into life. If you want to understand God, you have to understand the cross. And when you understand the cross, that's what we come to. That's where we fall. That's where all our sins are washed away. All the malevolence, all the evil, all the things we've done to create our own hell and all the things others have done to us comes to that very place and it's washed Away. C.S. Lewis makes a great picture of this with Aslan as the witch, uh, uh, as, as Aslan is willing to give his life for Edward, and the witch uh, tortures Aslan to death and kills him on the stone table, and he lays there dead, and the witch thinks she's won. And then Aslan comes back to life, and he's talking to. Uh, and, and in coming back to life, he literally conquers the evil. That's the second part of the picture we have to get. In coming back to life, he conquers the evil. There is an, um, uh, I'm going to finish the Aslan story. Where the kids come to him and the kids say this to him. After he came back, because he's now defeated the white witch. The white witch actually lost when she thought she won. And, and the, the, the kids say, did she not know that? Why, why would she kill you? And, the, and he says this. He says, the white witch knew the magic. The white witch knew that the only way Edward could live is if I gave my life. The white witch knew I would give my life. So the white witch thought she could win by taking my life. But there was a deeper magic that she didn't know. That's the cross. The story of Joseph is the quintessential uh, Old Testament uh, a picture of this. The story of Abraham is another. What happens with Joseph? At the end of his life, after all that his brothers did to him, after everything that was done to him, they sold him to, to uh, cousins. The cousins took him and sold him in slavery. He was, he was falsely accused. He was put in jail. He lived separated and exiled for his fa- from his family for, for years and years and years. And at the end of his life, when his brothers are scared to death, that he's going to take it, you know, get vengeance on them. Why? Because this world doesn't know how to forgive. It doesn't matter how many years. There's no forgiveness in this world. It doesn't matter, Joe, that we did that to you, you know, 25 years ago, Joe. We're afraid you're going to hurt us now. There's no forgiveness in the world. What does he say? He says this. He says, you meant it for evil. He says, you had evil intention of your hearts. The only thing you wanted to do was evil. You meant to destroy me. And instead of killing me, you actually found a way to destroy me and put some money in your pocket at the same time. Without having blood guilt on your hands. You meant it for evil. But God meant it for good. God doesn't conquer. Catch this, because this is the key of understanding this whole thing about the testing of our faith, right here. 
God doesn't conquer in spite of the dark mystery of evil. He conquers through it. He conquers through it. You see, the apostles got this. The apostles understand this. At the cross, Jesus enters into our suffering. He takes it on. He turns suffering into life. And then what does he ask us to do? He asked us to embrace the life that he bought for us at the cross, that he won for us. And he offers in return for, he offers that life in return for his suffering. But then he asks us to live with that cross in mind. You ever heard it says, take up your cross and follow me? How many have heard that? You see, when you understand that there is nothing that can happen to you in this world and in this life that God will not turn around and use for his glory when we are called and loved according to his purpose. Now, I want to be very clear. That doesn't mean everything that happens to us, God does to us. And that is important to understand. Joseph never says that God in... uh, uh, Um, caused his brothers to do what he did. God never says that, I mean, uh, Joseph never says, God caused you to hate me, to throw me in a pit, to sell me, all these things. God didn't cause that. That is not the heart, the character, and nature of God. What is the heart, the character, and nature of God is that he can transcend that. That's the miracle. And that is the eyes that our faith must give us. In fact, what the scripture says, if you don't have those eyes, you don't have faith. If you don't have those eyes, you don't have faith. There's a picture. It's a fantastic picture. It's in Revelation. Those that study Revelation with us know this. It's in the second major scene. Uh, It's in chapters 4 and 5. You'll find it there. And what is the picture? The picture is there's this the heavenly throne gardens, guardians, and the the divine council and the masses in heaven are are around the throne. and, uh, And there's a scroll and nobody can open this scroll. No one can open it. And John is weeping at the depths of his life. And it's like that scroll, that's, that's the book of life. That's the book of life there. And no one can answer it. It's sealed with seven seals. And he weeps uncontrollably from the depth of his gut. Where's the answer? Where's the answer? And finally someone leans over to John and says to him, weep no more. And he says, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, he has conquered. And he can open the scrolls and the mysteries therein. Catch what he says. He says this to him. He says, the lion of Judah. He says, the root of David, the conquering king. He says, he has conquered. That's what he says. That's what he hears. But immediately after that, John turns around to see. He's like, oh my goodness, I'm going to see a conquering lion. I'm going to see a great king. I'm going to see one who has done all. And he sees a lamb that had been slain. The lamb that had been slain. That's what he sees. That's the cross. The cross isn't a place of defeat. It's a place of victory. So, there's tons of places in the scripture. What I'm going to do right now is I'm going to just 
read a series of scriptures, and we'll hit some comments on this, because I want us to see this in the scripture, things that we're talking about here. Job says this, for affliction does not come from the dust, nor does trouble sprout out of the ground. But mourn, not mourn, man is born, that's mourn if you're in shorthand speak, right? Man is born to trouble as the sparks fly upward. How many know that? I have uh, John 16, I have said these things to you that, you that in me you may have peace and in the world you have tribulation. But take heart, I have overcome the world. In the world you have what? Notice what he says, in the world you, what, will have tribulation. But take heart, I have overcome the world. How did he overcome? Did he overcome with a sword and he ran out and over tribulation? Or did he overcome through the cross and bring it on? Now let me show you life in its place. You see, what we're looking at here in 2 Peter are eight attributes in order for these to be, to be in our life. The first one is faith. Guess what the last one is? Love. Love, from faith to love. How did Jesus conquer? He was faithful to the Father. The Father was faithful to him. And God demonstrates his love at the cross. Paul said this. This is in Acts 14. I mean, uh, Luke says this, Acts 14, about Paul. But the Jews came to Antioch and Iconium, and having persuaded the crowds... They stoned Paul and dragged him outside of the, uh, out of the city, supposing that he was dead. But when the disciples gathered around him, he rose up and entered the city. And on the next day, he went on into, with Barnabas to Derby. Okay. We can read. These are two sentences, and we can read them real fast. Paul is in these cities. He's preaching the gospel. And for preaching the gospel, what does he get? He gets stoned. Okay. Not like high stoned, stoned like killed stoned. All right? He, and and I, I, the scripture doesn't say here. I kind of read into it. Sometimes I wonder if Paul was actually dead. Because they drag him out as though he is dead. The disciples gather around him and they pray for him. Now, you just went to a city. You just brought the gospel. You're a missionary. And they stone you to death. What are you going to do? Well, Lord, I'm headed out of here. He goes back in. He goes back in. What's it say? Verse 21. When they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them in the faith, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. You see, how did he make many disciples? He didn't conquer in spite of tribulation. He conquered through it. Imagine what happens when Paul walks back into that city after having just been stoned and it didn't work. Imagine how that encourages all those others that saw him get stoned for his faith and now they're going, okay, who are weak in the faith, wondering what are we going to do now? And he walks back in with joy. You see, there's a, there's a strange verse in the scripture where the apostle Paul says this. He says, I make up in my body what is lacking at the cross for your behalf. And the first time I read that, it's like, what do you mean you're making up in your body? What's, there's nothing lacking in the cross. Jesus did everything in a cross. Isn't that an arrogant thing to say, Paul? No, it's not what he means that he's adding to the atonement of Christ. What he means is, I have seen the cross. I have a revelation of cro the cross. You do not. So therefore, I'm going to allow what happened at the cross to happen to me because I know that that brings life. And you will then see the cross the same way I see it. What will happen in a world where we get that? What will happen in that world? 2 Corinthians. This is a long, long scripture here. This is what it says. 
For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servant for Jesus' sake. In other words, we're not proclaiming ourselves. We're proclaiming the gospel of the Lord Jesus, and we're his servants. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. That's what we're presenting to people. That's what you want to know, God. It's in the face of Jesus Christ. You want to know who he is. You want light in your life. You, to, you want the darkness in your life to become light, you will find that in the face of Jesus Christ. That's what we proclaim. And then he says this, but we have this treasure in jars of clay. This great treasure is in a jar of clay to show what? That the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. And here's what he says. He says, we're afflicted in every way, but we're not crushed. We're perplexed. We don't understand it. It doesn't make sense. I don't, I don't, that's what perplexed is. Ever been perplexed? I don't get it. I don't know why this is happening. It doesn't make sense to me. How do I make it through this? But not driven to despair. We're persecuted. Lord, why is this happening? But we're not forsaken. We're struck down. We just heard about him getting struck down. But not destroyed. Always carrying in the body the death of Jesus. Why? So that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. How many of us want resurrection? How many of us want to live resurrection? How many of us want to see resurrection? How many, let me put it a different way. Do you want to see those that you love and you care for? Do you want to see those who are bringing hatred and evil in this world transformed and changed? That's resurrection. Where does resurrection come? After death. Through the cross. For we who are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh, so death is at work in us, but life in you. Since we have the same spirit of faith according to what has been written, I believed and so I spoke. We also believe and so we also speak. You see, all of this rests on our faith, the very thing we're talking about. Knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will also raise us with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence. You see, we are living for something that is coming that is so much greater. How much greater? For, for it is all for your sake so that this grace extends to more and more people, it may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. Catch this. For this light, momentary affliction. How many went through that list that Paul was talking about earlier? Afflicted, perplexed, persecuted, all these things, and went that that's light, momentary affliction. Anybody else have the same thought? For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. For an eternal weight of glory. Um, so to help understand that a little bit is to understand the word glory, kavod. What it actually means, it carries with it the sense of heaviness. Every time you see a theophany, every time you see someone come into the presence of God in the Bible, in the scriptures somewhere, you see them what? Fall down like a dead man. Oh my goodness. They come before God's glory and it's like this weight that comes on and that presses them down. That's how glorious God is. That's what he has. And the Apostle Paul, he actually was there. It tells us in, in Galatians that he was caught up to the third heaven. Uh, I mean, it tells us that in a, in later in this, in this same letter. Uh, he talks about it in Galatians as well, having exceeding revelations. He understands these things. He's seen it. He's, he's actually seen things he's not allowed to tell anyone. And he says this, I'm here to tell you. There is nothing, nothing we go through. He tells us in Romans, life, nor death, nor angels, uh, nor powers, nor principalities, tribulation, trial, famine. There is nothing that we can go through that compares 
that compares to the love of God, that compares to the weight of glory, that compares to the inheritance that is being held for us when we endure. For we know that if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this tent we groan, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling. Um, I'm just going to explain it. The tent, another word for it is tabernacle. Tabernacle, dwelling place for God. He's using the metaphor that we are the temple. He says, listen, this body is a temple. And right now... uh, uh, my, not only is my soul in this, but the Holy Spirit is in this. But there is a day when this temple, I put it off and I actually get a new temple. A new temple that will stand in glory before God. Let me go down. So... How many of you are familiar with the character Abraham in the Bible? Abraham is, the, is called the father of faith. Now I want to summarize Abraham's life up for a minute. So, at the age of 75, 75, God says, take your family, leave your land, go to a strange place you've never been before, And everywhere you put your feet, you're going to inherit that. You're going to have uh, uh, offspring so great that you can't number them. You're going to bless every family on earth. And I promise I'm going to do, do this for you. And you need to go out and walk this. And Abraham, at the age of 75, for no other reason, there is nothing. This is amazing about this story in the scripture. There is no reason other than this promise for God that Abraham t- takes everything at the age of 75 with no children, no heirs, no earthly way that this could happen and just does it and just obeys and just goes. This is why Abraham is called the father of faith. Now, I challenge you, go back and read the story. Starts at the end of chapter 11, goes to the 20-some verses into Genesis. Just read the story as a whole. And, and catch this, what happens to Abraham in his lifetime? While he is there waiting for God to keep his promise, Abraham steps out on faith on a promise, and what does he experience? Famine. He's got to go to Egypt. He's got to go live with the, uh, the Philistines. War. He's like right in the middle of a war. Four kings come down. Five, or four, five kings come down. Four kings are down here. And, and they're battling back and forth. In fact, separation from family. He has to split up with Lot. He experiences that. Now the next thing you know, he's got in the, caught up in the middle of the war. He's got to go rescue people in the middle of war. Still doesn't have a son. Strife. He's got strife with Lot. He had strife with Sarah. He had strife with Hagar. He had strife with Pharaoh. He had strife with Abimelech. I mean, he's gone through strife. 25 years, all of this is going on. And a lot of us miss this. Do you know what else he experienced? He literally stood on the sidelines and watched the judgment of Sodom and Gomorrah. He watched that. What a solemn thing to have experienced. Oh, my goodness. And still, no child. His wife is laughing. His wife laughs at God. Abraham laughs. And finally, finally, 25 years later, God gives him the promised son, Isaac. But here's the thing. The story doesn't end there. That's not the end of the story. Catch this. What happens next? After Isaac is grown, some think he's a, he's a child. I actually think Isaac was about 30 when this happens. And there's good reason for that. God comes to him and says, okay, give me that son. 
And Abraham doesn't hesitate, literally gets up the next morning and takes his son, takes the wood, takes some servants, goes to Mount Moriah. Says this in the Anchor, Anchor Yale Bible Dictionary. I love this. The story of the offering up of Isaac goes beyond all the previous trials of Abraham and pushes forward into the realm of faith's extremist experience where God himself rises up as the enemy of his own work with men and hides himself so deeply that for the recipient of the promise, the only way of utter forsakenness by God seems to stand open. Let me say what the author's saying here. For Abraham to take Isaac after all of this and to put him on that altar, it appears as though God is literally killing his own promise. Yet, the only path forward for Abraham is to trust God in the middle of that. You don't think that's real? Anybody remember this? My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Oh, I've seen it as Christians in evangelical circles. We like to quote, well, he's quoting Psalm 23 and he's using the scriptures to encourage himself and all this. Absolutely, he is quoting that. That scripture does talk about what is coming and what is future. But doggone it, it also talks about what he was really feeling in the moment. And even in that, he said, not my will be done, but your will be done. And he dies and is raised to new life and is now seated at the right hand of the Father so that at the name of Jesus Christ, there is no other name on heaven or on earth by which you might be saved. And he asks us to endure the testing of our faith. Because when we do, it demonstrates him. And we demonstrate that we are looking forward to the glory more than being seduced by the glamour. I'll close out with a couple of scriptures. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he's caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Guys, we have a living hope. We have a living hope. A living hope. Look, this doesn't mean that everything that we go through in life is always dowered down. But it means that by and large, what we face in this world, we started this off. This is why I started with that video. Most people are walking through this life scared, frightened to death because of how hard life is in this world. We live in that same world. And if we pretend like we live in any other world, we will never reach those who know that their reality is not what we're pretending. But when we live in the same world they're living in, and we live a living hope, bring it on. And we rejoice in our Savior. Lord, I don't want to go through this. I don't like going through this. But I thank you that you have counted me worthy to, be, to suffer as Jesus has suffered. And through that, the power of the Holy Spirit is released, not only in our lives, but through our lives to touch others. 
We have a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. Number two, number one, we have a living hope. Number two, we have an, in, we have an, uh, an unassailable inheritance, an inheritance that cannot go away. It is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. And number three, it is kept in heaven for you who by God's power are being guarded how? Through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Why would we have to be guarded unless there was something to guard us from? That's why this whole message. That's why this whole message. Guys, there's a lot of hard and difficult things that we live through and we go through. Jesus conquered at the cross. There is a hope that is alive and is real in him when we embrace him. It's not only a hope that's alive and living now. It provides an inheritance that we can't even imagine. Unassailable inheritance. And not only provides an unassailable inheritance, God actually guards us through this. But all of those things don't take away the fact that we will go through the trials. So let's build one another up. Let's encourage one another. Let's walk in the joy that we know is ours in him. Let's stand together in this. Let's see the light and the power of the Holy Spirit live and move in our lives. Amen.